namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa aparuta de sangamatasatavara So being abiding in the silence, the silence is here and now. The noise is uh, external noise that we hear or the busyness of our thoughts, our habits. And then there's the futo, the aware, the witness of the movement and change of our own thoughts, emotions, is different as the uh, conditions change in the present. So our worldly minds, our conditioned minds, are very much uh, built on the good and bad, right and wrong, success and failure, heaven and hell, male and female, and on and on like that. So every every perception has its object, the positive or the negative. So when we approach meditation, we want to progress in meditation. We see meditation as something that we have to progress in, achieve, be successful. So the, uh, when we first become interested in Buddhist meditation, whether it's monastics or lay people, the conditioning of the mind is to progress. And so in many ways, Buddhist meditation can be taught in a, what they call the gradual path, which is a, a, always seems like a progress. And then uh, there's the instant enlightenment practice of wisdom, which progress is, we see as, as another condition we cling to. So many people, in my experiences among, in teaching meditation to others, and my own experience is to see myself progressing or I'm reached a limit, a wall, I'm not progressing in my practice. Uh, the mind can, after years of trying to progress in practice, then it, the, all the techniques, all the ways that we approach meditation aren't working anymore. It's what we call a wall or we can't get, you can't go any further. So the wisdom, universal wisdom, isn't about progress, or regress, or walls, or anything. It's about here and now. So that's why I encourage you to really investigate the, your own personality, to the, how you see yourself as an individual person, as a man or woman, monk or lay person. Just to observe, you know, the, 
the separateness, the feeling of separateness and progress is about, you know, our perception, concepts generated out of the changing conditions that we experience through the senses, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, through the mind, everything's changing. Anything change implies both the progress and degeneration. And so that the attitude of achieving or succeeding in meditation or or getting past the wall, being stuck in a in a valley, not getting any more uh, trans uh, uh, peaceful states of mind, no matter how hard you try, reaching the wall and you. You think I'm not progressing in my meditation. <clears throat> or is it that uh, you, you need to change your attitude about progress and meditation? These are just words, convenient words that we use. <clears throat> and uh, they, they work quite well in terms of teaching others and in in our uh, teaching ourselves we need concepts and words and and we have a this tradition has the Pali language the Thai language to to kind of give different uh, kind of meaning to many English words that we use in teaching Dhamma here in the United States But the words themselves are concepts that are created. They're impermanent conditions. And no matter how hard we cling to good concepts, uh, we still suffer. Because the world that we live in is changing. And we're changing. The, what we identify with is, is a, a kind of belief in ourselves as a permanent, separate person. <clears throat> and so, like I am Ajahn Sumedho is, is a, can be a very fixed position for me. And then you can investigate, am I Ajahn Sumedho when I'm asleep? You know, and then people ask, I'd like to see Ajahn Sumedho and they said, he's asleep. And so they, on the conventional level, that makes sense. Maybe I am asleep. Maybe I'm not asleep. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is, what doesn't sleep? If I am just a separate entity in the universe that sleeps, then when I can't sleep, then I, feel I want to take uh, sleeping pills or drink chamomile tea or do something or other uh, to, to, because I, I, I like to go into the state where I'm no longer uh, awake. Most of us like to sleep. But when the body is sleeping, when the consciousness is not Active, focusing on objects anymore. What, what is still present here and now? And you're not dead. Body's not dead. It's breathing. Its uh, internal organs are functioning, and on and on like that. So it isn't that the that the body's dead unless the body dies when that's no longer capable of functioning when the organs don't work the senses don't work then we call that death but what dies is the conditions and that's the nature of conditioned phenomena it's reached that it can't 
go beyond death. So we create uh, imaginary states that are after death what remains. And we create, we have this in the Western world view of a soul, a separate soul, or we don't believe in a separate soul, we can believe in in uh, oblivion, once you're dead, that's the end of everything. <clears throat> or we believe in reincarnation, that will be reborn as uh, in some other form. And we see that in very personal. In a previous life, I was such and such. And there's a lot of fascinating stories about reincarnation, rebirth, and on and on like that, because it is a kind of one way of explaining, because it's a, it can be a rather, it's an interesting question, what happens after death? And, uh, you know, then in terms of concepts, then we have beliefs, like reincarnation is a belief, heaven and hell is a belief, uh, oblivion is a belief because we don't know the body bodies are still breathing still alive so when we identify with the body then we we, we see death as a rather you know we can make horror movies about zombies and ghosts and unlike that imagining all kinds of things because the imagination of a living individual it can be quite active. And it is a mystery in terms of the way we interpret ourselves and life that we live. Because as a person, none of us know what happens after death. But we'll all find out if that's good news. <laughs> but the, the idea of progress is this belief in time is our reality. Time is, is uh, you know, where things, the condition realm, we experience the condition realm in time. The, the four elements, the earth, fire, water, air, elements, space, and sensory consciousness are all changing conditions in terms of the reality of a, every, every living being. But we can create images, like uh, uh, imagine, we, we've got vivid imaginations, we can create images of perfection, of hell, of, of, uh, of nothingness. Once you're dead, you're dead, that's the end of everything. But we don't know. And that very fact, we don't know, was where wisdom begins to manifest. Where we begin to use wisdom rather than just trying to belief or disbelieve in the various concepts about birth and death. So then, <clears throat> to the Buddha, life was an investigation. So his teachings aren't about progress and development and about walls and about uh, what happens when, when you get dementia. Alzheimer's, lose your memory, then who are you? You know, so we imagine, you know, we can imagine all kinds of things about getting old, suffering from dementia, loss of memory, Alzheimer's disease are kind of perceptions that are very common now in modern life in the Western world. Because it is, because the societies we live in are all based on youth, on the idea of progress, the idea of 
good health, the idea of, you know, really beautiful ideals. But the wisdom is not there to understand that ideals are not reality. Not We don't experience ideals. We imagine them. And they can be very harmful ideals about hell and eternal punishment and, and uh, being reborn as a frog or something like that. You can imagine you can be reborn as an amoeba or an earthworm or a pig. You know, the imagination has no limits in terms of forms that we're all capable of imagining. But imagining is a, is a condition. Images are all conditions. They arise and cease. So in terms of politics, for example, we want progress. We want, uh, we have ideals concepts of an ideal political system and then uh, communism was was a was an ideal political system uh, socialism is an ideal political system democracy is an ideal political system they're all images of perfection So it's not that there's anything wrong with any of them, but we tend to, out of conditioning, be programmed to take sides. In the United States, we're Democrats, or to vilify others, we call them communists or socialists, because those words in the, the culture of this country are have negative qualities to them. Where democracy, I'm all for democracy, uh, it gets you elected into the government. So, <clears throat> just to see how, uh, and religion itself is, is full of concepts. It's about concepts of belief. And these are, in terms of Dhamma, they're all conventions. All religions are conventional. Political systems are conventions. They're attempts to reach perfection. For example, communism, the idea of, of where everything's equal and fair and there's no rich or poor. And, uh, you know, it's uh, taking the ideal to, to an ultimate extreme But then it's not in touch with the reality of the human condition. Because the reality is not about equality and fairness and justice. The experience of each one of us is about change and differences. The conditioned realm, what we call Sangasara, is all about differences, about tribal differences, class differences, sexual differences, all the differences that we can imagine and identify with. And then that creates, we think from upper class, then we, we, you know, that identity is, can take us through life, we're always feeling better than the lower working classes. Or we can think working class, then we're, we can carry that to the grave, that no matter how wealthy you become, you're still just working class member of society. Because these impressions are inculcated in our minds when we're quite young and innocent. And so we, we can hold to ideals which are beautiful and good, but they are, you can't, create ideal situations. In moments of our lives, everything seems ideal, but then it changes. 
and being brought up in the United States myself, you know, you're brought up with this ideal of progress, which is a very pleasant idea. Everything's going to get better and better, uh, and uh, all the injustices are going to be resolved, all the, the racial tensions, the class identities, the gender identities will all fade away into just a, a total fair ideal that we can long for, imagine. But is that the way we experience life in our daily life? Here and now. Learning to live with other people always takes a, a certain amount of wisdom because we have to accept differences. When we when we're young, we get married and we have ideals about uh, perfect relationship, progressing in time into a you know permanent feeling of love and uh, affection but that's that's an ideal way of thinking that can be a belief but the realities of living with any other person than yourself is that you've got to adapt to different ways of thinking, different expectations, different attitudes, if you're going to live together. So I pointed out to the traditional Sangha here at uh, Temple Forest Monastery of the, you know, the, the conformity is about action and speech. We, we, the Vinaya discipline that we adhere to is a traditional discipline, but it's only about action and speech. Right and wrong, acceptable, unacceptable perceptions that are created through these precepts that we call the Vinaya. And so in one way the Sangha works because on action and speech, it you know we we pretty much on the same track, but in terms of meditation, you know it's a, when you when you uh, practice meditation you kind of think because you have these insights or these uh, these understandings that everyone else should. And so in the monastic life, Ajahn Jandwaj and Nando have experienced disappointment <laughs> when their efforts at pointing to Dhamma get totally misunderstood. <laughs> or they, people reach a wall and think, I am not progressing anymore, so I'm disrobing, is one way of responding to that perception of the wall and lack of progress. But also, it's, it's a, a wall is a perception. No matter how I feel, if, I've, if I interpret my experience of meditation as I'm, I've hit the wall, I can't get beyond it. That's the reality that I'm experiencing through thinking, through feeling, through emotion, because all my efforts at meditation aren't getting me anywhere that I would that I would like to go. I'm just stuck in this valley of despair or this this permanent every time I sit down to meditate I I just feel depressed or I I can't get tranquil anymore or we go on and on like that without realizing that in every moment, whether it's you feel you're really getting somewhere with meditation or you're not getting anywhere, you hit a wall, these are concepts that you cling to, identify with. So 
So maybe in terms of progress, is that progress? Do we all hit walls? Yes. <clears throat> the kind of <clears throat> enthusiasm for a monastic life that we had in the beginning, it's a wall. It's no longer interesting or create, no, we no longer feel enthusiastic about it. And uh, is it because I'm not a good monk or I'm not progressing? in the monastic life, I can hold to those views. Or I can just imagine, well, you don't have to be a monk to meditate, you can be a lay person, get married, have children, get a job, and live happily ever after, <laughs> is, is a nice image when you hit the wall as a monk. But, that's not really investigating the reality of here and now because you're still operating from the separate self, the, the ego level. I am this person, I'm a Buddhist monk, and I've hit a wall, are all creations of the mind. They're not ultimate reality. They all arise and cease. And that's why this witnessing position uh, of Bhutto is, is a position of observing. Being fed up with monastic life is like this. Being hitting a wall is like this. So you, you're kind of in this, this way of reflecting. You're not trying to judge it in any personal way. It's no longer, I'm depressed, I'm not progressing. It's witnessing this, these concepts, these feelings of not progressing, of hitting a wall. And so they say, as it's like this, is a way of letting go of it. Because as we accept the fact that we're in a valley of despair or we're, we're we're disillusioned with everything. We, we, uh, we, we can imagine a better life doing something else. And they're all what we call grist for the mill. They're all ways of important perceptions that we can create in the mind to recognize as impermanent and not self. So in, um, when you come to live in the West, when you've been trained, ordained and trained in Thailand, which, which is a Buddhist country, you know, it's very interesting. And for many of us, we get so much respect just because we're, we're Buddhist monks. When we try to speak Thai, we don't make sense. And we <laughs> we're rather clumsy physically and compared to Thais, which are very graceful people. And, so, and uh, but you get an enormous amount of respect, which is very nice for individually to take that very personally, to feel respected. And people, you know, I used to reflect on on uh, generosity. Uh, I'm a foreigner, an American, in a, in a very traditional Thai monastery and totally accepted and respected. One time when I was just a new monk, when I first met Lung Po Cha at Wat Pa Pong in Newborn, and uh, there were 22 monks then at Wat Pa Pong, and I was at the end of the line, I was the 22nd monk. And uh, people, Thai people would come in from the villages or the cities and they'd go and pay respect to Ajahn Chah and then they'd come over to me at the end of the line and pay respect to me. <laughs> and I thought, what about all the other ones? <laughs> See, my American mind went into more democratic perceptions of 
you know, why me? You know, I'm, a, I'm the newest, I can't even speak the language. And they're, they're paying this, this kind of respect. And I, then I would take everything personally anyway. So I asked Ajahn Chah, I said, I don't think it's right that they should come and pay respect to me unless they do it to the other monks who are senior to me. Because the whole structure is very hierarchical. Seniority is, gets the privileged position of first. So, Lumo um, Chao told me, he said, they're just so impressed to see a foreigner, an American, in a robe. <laughs> and they just want to let you know they're, they're supporting you. <laughs> so it was very moving, you know, how, you know, how one could look at it from uh, a very democratic view. They shouldn't pay respect to me because I'm the newly ordained monk. You can't even speak Thai, and that's how, you know, the structural, uh, uh, the hierarchical structure works. But then Lumpur Chow is pointing to something else beyond the hierarchical structure to just uh, the, the, the culture of Thai, Northeast Thai, is a very traditional conservative part of Thailand, and so you know, they, uh, they really, and the Americans at that time, there's 1967, the Americans had a huge military presence in Ubo, in the, the nearby city. So they always saw Americans as uh, kind of riding around on flashy bicycles, and they had all these nightclubs and bars, and American GIs uh, roaming the streets. And uh, he built, the Americans built the Uborn International Airfield in order to bomb Vietnam, and this was the height of the Vietnam War. And so when an American, young American, ordains as a Buddhist monk in the strictest, most strict monastery in Thailand, as we all believed, uh, that really impressed them. And so I felt this, in, you know, this kind of reflecting on how respected I was just for being a monk was very moving and very touching. So it's a, it's a good way to kind of be introduced to monastic life in a Buddhist country. And ten years later I moved to England and they're, you know, living in in the city of London for two years, the first two years. And going Bindabad in, in London and and uh, living in a non-Buddhist country. You know, people, you know, the British are, aren't really rude by nature, so they just try to ignore you. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> you go on to continental Europe and you get called all kinds of unpleasant names. I thought this was my experience. And, uh, and then I remember we lived in northwest London in, in near Hampstead Heath, which is a very nice part of London. And there, um, we go Bindabad on this huge uh, heathland, and it's the highest point in the city of London, and a lot of heathland is uncultivated and so forth, so it's quite, for a forest monk, it's quite a, a treasure to have this place to go to in the morning. And then one morning on Bindabat, uh, I was walking down the, the street going back to the Vihara, and this schoolboy was standing in my way. And schoolboys usually like to make fun of strange-looking people. So I was expecting him to uh, to be cause some kind of trouble, but instead he 
he gave me the Y like this and asked me to stop and put in his uh, apple from his school lunch in my arms. That was very moving. So years later I met him and I, he told me he was that boy and I said, what motivated you to, to do that? Because it's not your culture, you don't know what, what, you know, most English people in London thought it was a drum. <laughs> <laughs> We've been asked to play the drum. <laughs> so, and then the, just these kind of situations, um, you know, then they're all ways of experience that you don't get uh, rude behavior in Thailand, but in the Western world you can you can be called skinhead. That was one of the more pleasant names. <laughs> so, uh, but the it was uh, interesting to you see even when you're called weird and and what are you doing here in our country and you're trying to convert good Christians into Buddhists and all kinds of perceptions that people can have about something totally different than what they're used to. But that's what pointing at is that, that the conditions can go from, from America to Mexico to, you know, the European countries or Africa, Asia, and we make value judgments when we, tourists can make value judgments about other cultures. Because that's not what they're used to. In America we do it like this, and then that can be the standard of what's right. <clears throat> so being a, using wisdom as our refuge, then we can be aware of that. We're not going to try to not feel prejudiced or superior or unsympathetic to something different than what we're used to, but we, we're using our own emotional reactions to differences to be the witness of them. They are due to the various conditions in the present moment. This is what I feel. I can feel threatened. When I see the swastika, uh, you know, because I was brought up during the Second World War, you know, I get a certain feeling that I was conditioned, in, you know, as an innocent boy. Do As soon as you see that particular symbol, it's rather scary because you connect it with brutality and, and uh, Nazis and so forth, and those are all perceptions that were acquired when I was a child. But in India, it's a sacred symbol. So, so you go to India and you see swastikas, and you can, you know, you can still feel the same kind of reaction that when you see one in, in England or Europe, but then being aware of that is just a habitual reaction. It's the condition. The conditions for fear arise because that's how we were conditioned when we were previously in our youth. And so wisdom allows us to observe. We're not trying to be perfect individuals with perfectly liberal ideal attitudes towards everything, because then we can fool ourselves. But we're willing to use the way we are, the reactions we have, the way we've been conditioned for developing the path. So this word developing also implies progress. The path is always is a symbol for having a beginning and an end, and so we have the Eightfold Path, as the fourth noble truth. So we easily think of first I have to get right understanding and then 
right intention and then uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and on and on, like to right uh, concentration and right wisdom. So, right is is very much a dualistic term. If right and wrong, they go together. So then, uh, you know, actually, what is right understanding? The first perception of the Eightfold Path, right understanding. And then as you trust in awareness, in the witnessing position of Bhutto, here and now, this being a witness to the, the, what you're experiencing through your senses is like this, then you have insight. You begin to see things as they really are, other than from the conditioning, social conditioning, religious conditioning, political conditioning. And then the Buddhist teaching is all conditions are impermanent. It's a wisdom, a statement of wisdom. It's the way things are. If you investigate life, investigate yourself, your body is impermanent. Your emotions are impermanent. Your senses, everything, you know, your memories are impermanent. The conditioning that we receive, the ego is impermanent. The social conventions that we are conditioned by are impermanent. We begin to see the impermanent nature of samsara, the changing worldly experiences that we have through the through the bodies, through these separate bodies. So samaditi then becomes immediate. The Eightfold Path is no longer a path, it's here and now. It's no longer just, yet as soon as I get samaditi then I can go on to, to some sangapo and things like that. That's the way the thinking mind works. It works in tandem with one aim comes before B and onward like that. That's how we think. That's how the thinking mind operates. But samaditi isn't a thought. It's not a belief. It's an insight into reality the way it actually is. All conditions are impermanent. All Dhamma is anatta, not self, not separate self. So what does that leave you, you know, is the reality of Dhamma here and now which is conscious awareness, and that's the gate to the deathless, the, the door that the Buddha pointed to in his teaching. The gate to the deathless is open. So a gate or a door is like an entrance. It always conveys it's a symbol for the entrance into samaditi or right understanding. But it's actually beyond right understanding. <laughs> because we can have all kinds of views about Dhamma that we get from reading the scriptures or reading various Buddhist books or what teachers tell us. So we can think that some teachers have wrong understanding and other teachers have right understanding. If you're teaching uh, Dhamma according to the the perceptions of the Pali Canon that's right and if it is presented in some other way it's wrong. We can believe in right and wrong in terms of how we perceive our own tradition. But right and wrong are perceptions. It's not Dhamma, it's conditions that that we are 
bound to out of ignorance, not understanding who we really are, what we really are, we tend to cling to perceptions about ourselves as, as, a, as a physical body, as a male or female, as a, an American, as a Thai, and, or you know, all these are conventional forms. And that's all they are. They're, they're not ultimate reality. They're not right understanding. So right understanding has no words. Apparent here and now, timeless, the way it is are the best we can do with words. But then in terms of apparent here and now, is very what is apparent here and now wherever you are you know the what we see is going to change you know so is it whether you're sick or healthy or awake or asleep whether you're young or old male or female what is apparent here and now for all human beings And it's recognizing the power of this witnessing, the Bhutto, the Buddha, knowing Dhamma the way it is. Dhamma is apparent here and now. And when I do that, then I realize consciousness is apparent here and now. And it and that consciousness isn't conditioned by culture, by the ego, by the all the conditioning process that we acquire after we're born. And so then we begin to find a sense of metta, of loving kindness, of karuna, of compassion for others, of mudita, joy in life and equanimity that come from wisdom rather than perceptions of unconditioned love, compassion, joy, and, and uh, equanimity. Like those are words trying to convey, you know, so we tried, I remember trying to spread metta you know, with the with the traditional form, and and just by witnessing, you know, I could think, may all beings be happy, may all beings be well, and as long as it was all beings, there's no problem. But then it came to individual beings, <laughs> and then you feel something else. You know, so. So, so it was, uh, I remember at Amravati, when Mrs. Thatcher was the Prime Minister, they lead a 10-day meditation retreat and everybody's feeling metta for all the Chinese in China and all the Russians in the Soviet Union and all the English and, and then you mentioned Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> And there's this sudden freeze, you could, it was palpable. <laughs> so intellectually, you know, it's easier to have metta for seven billion Chinese who you don't know, who is somewhere over in China, than an irritating monk sitting next to you, breathing too hard. <laughs> And this is awareness, you know, can you feel this same kind of ideal loving-kindness for masses that are no threat at the present moment, but at the present moment there's something else is going on that you don't feel metaphor. You can, you can try to impose the words on to that, but in some part of you knows that it's just pretending where Awareness itself 
isn't isn't a perception. It's not about loving kindness and loving everybody in some kind of personal, grand way of personal ability. But it's it's the natural way of dhamma. Love is a very is a word that's used for many things in the English language. So, <clears throat> oftentimes. It really means liking something or somebody very much. But then the conditions change. Then you don't love them anymore. Where metta, in terms of loving kindness, is what consciousness really is. Because it's all, we all share the same consciousness. It's not personal. And so it's a, it's an insight into unconditioned love that where that holds everything together. Love is a you know a word that conveys it holds things together. When when there's love in a community, then the community holds together. Hatred is where we feel separate. We want to get rid of what we hate and don't like, and we want to experience this unconditioned love with what we like but even that can change so change is the word of the samsara the, the conditioned realm that we're experiencing through these bodies so like vipassana the word vipassana insight meditation looking into the way things are rather than just believing in Buddhist terminologies. I mean, the terminologies in the, in the Pali Canon, in the suttas, are, you know, they're not doctrinal positions that we take, but they're ways of investigating experience that break down the illusions that we're conditioned by. 